They wanted to break the legs of God Himself so that they could keep their ceremony. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of East and West Season 3. This is a show for helping us keep our spiritual bearings as we navigate this world around us. Today, we're looking again at Isaiah chapter 1, specifically at the difference between religion and relationship. This is one topic that Jesus could not stay away from. This is one topic that Jesus was immensely passionate about in knowing the difference between ritual and relationship. And my prayer is that your relationship with God is growing ever tighter every day. May this episode help you in that pilgrimage. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy. If there was ever a book that gives me chills, it would be Isaiah. It's just something powerful about it. And Jesus clearly felt so too. He quoted it quite a bit. And so last time, maybe a month or so ago, in the first chapter, the morning sermon, I talked about how God is our Father. And we are His children, father-child relationship. And then in the evening service, I looked at the next part of chapter 1, and it talked about how we, like so many other children, are rebellious, disobedient by nature. You don't have to teach a child to cross the line. All you have to do is draw a line, and by their nature, they're going to cross it. And humans treat God that way from the very beginning. Now tonight or today, sorry, today's sermon, I want to look at the next part of the chapter, which is the human reaction when we realize we messed up. There's a certain thing that humans are tempted to do in order to fix it. And it's, it's a, as they call around home repair, DIY, do-it-yourself project. And when we realize by whatever conviction it was, you know, maybe the original sin was we were given to fits of rage, but then the next thing we know, we woke up one morning and realized we were a grump. Or maybe the temptation was to drink too much, and then the next thing we knew, we woke up and we were a drunk. It's what it, whatever the conviction was, maybe the sin's been there a while and you finally got caught, or just the Holy Spirit's working on you that you need to change this and you're having a hard time changing it. So anyway, the the, the knee-jerk reaction of a human is to get religious, is to turn to ritual and to do. I know that in my life, this may be a peculiar, peculiar to me, but I don't know, maybe you can relate to it. Times I've sunk quite low and I've just felt vile, sort of like in the parable of the tax collector and the, uh, the Pharisee in the temple and the, the tax collector couldn't even look up to heaven. He said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. He couldn't even bring himself to look up. In those moments, sometimes I fall on my face and pray to God and ask, forgive me. But sometimes I think strange thoughts about visiting a cathedral, like the St. Joseph Cathedral in Macon or the St. whatever it is in Savannah, and just taking one of those guided tours and just seeing the, and just getting right. The rituals sometimes and the religion are what we turn to to save us. And here's what God says about outward religion. In Isaiah chapter 1, starting in verse 10. 
Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, which to the Jews, that was their religious ritual, was to sacrifice. We have our own. It doesn't usually involve blood and altars and knives, but they had theirs. What are they to me? Says the Lord. I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure. This is God talking. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot bear your evil assemblies, your new moon festivals, and your appointed feast. My soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. How many times have I said that to my children? Those two words. Just do right. It's not about all the other. All the even window dressing of religion. The steps and the procedures and the cathedrals and the clothing and the ritualistic nature and the legalism. Just do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Just a couple of more verses. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. They, though they are as red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, just do right. You will eat the best from the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Despite all your religion, the Lord has spoken. That's a powerful conviction. And interestingly, the things he's complaining about, the burnt offerings, the new moon festivals, the appointed feasts, the Sabbaths, all of that that he's saying, these are a burden to me. Stop all this. The interesting part is they were his idea. He's the one that came up with that. He's the one that gave, God is the one that gave the law to the Jews and said, do it this way. Worship me this way. So why would he complain about it now it's because they're putting it first and God second, third, fourth. The rituals have usurped the worship. They've usurped and bypassed the relationship, which is what he was really after from the get-go. What does the Bible say over and over? I will be their God and they will be my people and I will walk with them. That's all God wants. Do right Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Do right. These were the ways He wanted them to worship Him, but it became more about the ways than it did about the worship. Now I looked up a couple of things that I want to read to you. from. This is from what, I mean, they're old stories, but what we would call fairly modern literature. And both of them are interesting because they show outward religion steps that you can take in order to get rid of your sin. I mean, we all want, or at least I do, I want verse 18. I want to be washed as white as snow. Though my sins are as crimson, though my sins are scarlet, and I know that they are, I have no qualms about that, they will be washed as white as snow. I, and I got that. 
And I want that. Here's one from a book by Ernest Hemingway called The Old Man in the Sea. And so this guy, Santiago, is out trying, he's hooked to this huge marlin and he's about to kill him. He's an old man. And he says this, quote, Santiago says, I am not religious, but I will say ten Our Fathers and ten Hail Marys that I should catch this fish. And I promise to make a pilgrimage to the Virgin of Cobra if I catch him. That is a promise. So he prays to God, here's what I'll do. Ten Hail Marys, ten Our Fathers. I'll say this prayer ten times. I'll say this prayer ten times. I'll even make a pilgrimage to this cathedral. Just let me catch this fish. As if God needed us. As if God needs our effort to do anything. Who has asked, he says in Isaiah, who's asked for this multitude of your sacrifices? They're a burden to me. As if we could, basically, as if we could earn it. Now here's another one, and I think a better one. Because this one was actually written as a Christian fiction. It was written as a, as a fictional story, but from a very Christian perspective. It's by Washington Irving. That's the guy who wrote The Legend of Sleepy Hollow and Rip Van Winkle. But he wrote another one called The Devil and Tom Walker. And Tom Walker sold his soul to the devil for money, the classic motif of you know, giving up your relationship with God for some worldly pleasure. So he sold his soul to the devil in the story for money. And then he starts to get old and he realizes like we all do eventually, though I think when the devil has us fooled well enough, we, the devil says, you're going to live forever, do whatever you want with your life. But he started getting to the point, he realized, you know, sooner or later, I am going to die. And I'm going to really wish I hadn't sold my soul. And he started thinking about his afterlife. But instead of repenting of his greed and of his, his he was lending money at horribly high interest and just ripping people off dishonestly, Instead of repenting and doing right, here's what he did. I'm going to read Irving's words. As Tom Walker waxed on, however, he grew thoughtful. Having secured the good things of this world, he began to feel anxious about those of the next. He thought with regret of the bargain he had made with his uh, black friend, his devilish friend, set his wits to work to cheat him out of the conditions. He became, therefore, all of a sudden, a violent churchgoer. And it doesn't mean violent in the sense of put up your dukes. It means he became very much a churchgoer. He prayed loudly and strenuously. Does that sound familiar? Remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees? When you pray, stop praying on the street corners. Stop these lengthy prayers. Stop making a public show out of prayer. Jesus said, lock yourself in your closet and what you say in secret, the Lord will hear in secret. That wasn't Tom's way. Because he didn't actually want a relationship with God. He thought that religion was going to save him. He thought that the ritual would save him, so he prayed loudly as if heaven would be to taken by, were to be taken by the force of his lungs. Indeed, one might always tell when he had sinned the most during the week by the clamor of his Sunday devotion. The worse he was during the week, the more he was into it. Whatever it is they were doing on Sunday morning, be it the prayer or the singing, and it even goes on to say that the saints who had been going faithfully to that church and having their quiet, saintly pilgrimage for years started to even feel kind of guilty. Wow, Tom's doing this better than I am. But why did they think that? Because it looked better. Because the outward show of it looked better. He was doing, by his own effort, this thing called ritualistic religion. This thing that God says through Isaiah, I have no pleasure 
in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you appear before me, who has asked this of you? And Jesus said, I'll quote it, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does my will, do right, who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many right works, 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 works in your name? Look at our resume. We've earned this. And then he will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Part one of this sermon, which has just reached its conclusion, that part has, is don't trust in your own doings, in the outward show and the appearances. Part two is this. When we get pulled into that trap, which is certainly easy to do, it can lead to a certain kind of blindness that is so it's so pervasive, it's so blinding that you don't even know that you're blind. The worst sort of sin is when you don't know that you're sinning, when you're in denial, or that you don't even know that you're in denial because you're so denying it. And it leads to a spiritual blindness that I'm going to try to illustrate this way because we've been, y'all may have heard about this virus that's been going around these past few months, kind of upset a few things like the school system for one. Here's an illustration. I'm a pretty organized teacher. And so I've worked, I've been teaching 11 years literature, and so I've been working on these this way to teach grammar so that when a kid goes through my class, <laughs> my assembly line, when he comes out the other end, by golly, he'll know how to write a good sentence. Okay, that's the plan. And so I've kind of, I mean, my mind, I've kind of perfected this because I keep tweaking it every year and I try to get the system just right. And I've got these weekly things I do called sentences of the week and on Monday I teach it. On Tuesday I review it. On Thursday I quiz it. And I've got all the quizzes made. And the quizzes are cumulative and they know that if what they learn one week is going to come back three weeks later and it's this whole, it's this whole beautifully organized system. This is, by the way, coming from a guy who when I was 19, my mom said, what do you want for Christmas? I said, I'd like a filing cabinet. Okay, that's me. How nerdy is that? The year after, I asked for a vacuum cleaner. I mean, just pitiful. And so I've got this thing where it's a, it's a five-day-a-week program, and if you do it 180 days of school year, they'll know grammar. And then coronavirus happens. And y'all may know that the high school now, we suffered early on from some serious quarantines. They weren't sick, but they'd been exposed possibly to the sickness. And so we had a class of 30. My first period class of 30 became a class of six for two weeks. Made it very difficult to teach. And so we had to sort of do some something. We went to this A-B schedule. Half the kids come one day, the other half come the next day, and we alternate. So I only see them a couple of days a week, and the days are always staggered and whoppy-jawed and funky. Well, guess what? You can't do SOW quizzes on your nice, neat filing cabinet model when you're not seeing the kids on a regular basis. I had to, as the football metaphor goes, I had to back up and punt. I had to rethink everything. And what I found was, you know, I'm, and I, the point, I guess, of the story is I never would have really done this without some sort of significant interruption to my routine. If it hadn't been for the, the COVID AB schedule thing, I never would have done this because I'd worked so hard getting these quizzes just right. 11 years of work, I was not about to throw that out. 
But when it all got upset, I realized what I had to do. The only way to survive this thing was to make a list. And it's taped to my whiteboard at my classroom right now. Make a list. What grammar lessons do I want the kids to learn in ninth grade? Forget the quizzes. Forget the presentations. Forget the PowerPoints. Forget the worksheets. Just what do I want them to know? And I taped it to my board. It's about 19 things is my list. And I know this sounds obvious, but I've just sort of been teaching the kids one by one the things. And I check it off. And what I've realized is my quizzes weren't really all that good. My worksheets were kind of, kind of busy workish. Just teach them the concept. And I'll tell you this, if we go back to absolute normal next year, those quizzes aren't coming back. But I never would have done that because I put in 11 years of work getting them just right. And it sounds a lot like Nicodemus, doesn't it? When he came to Jesus in secret and Jesus said, you must be born again. And this is Nicodemus who has put his whole life into this, this pharisaical religion of becoming an elite religious man. And probably with good intention, he worked very hard at it. And he says, what? Start over? Surely you don't mean that a man can go back into his mother's womb and be reborn. Which I don't think he was suggesting that literally. I think he was saying, you've got to be kidding. I have been working my whole life heavenward and suddenly now you want me to start from scratch? Anyone who enters the kingdom of heaven must enter like a little child? You want me to be born again to scrap all of that? That was the, that's the plan. Jesus said, I'm, I'm new wine. You can't put me in old wineskins. I'm new. Those quizzes had to go, but I was so invested in the quizzes, I had forgot what school was really about. Learning. It's about learning. And sometimes we get so invested in church that we forget what it's really about. It's about God. In the book of Revelation, when He stands at the door and knocks, and if anyone will open the door to me, I will come in and I will dine with them. You know that He was talking to a church when He said that. that we use that as sort of an evangelical kind of line. I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone will open... And that is true. You can invite Jesus into your heart that way. But that particular letter, I don't remember which of the seven churches it was addressed to off the top of my head, but it was a letter to a church probably a very busy, active, doing church. But Jesus was outside and knocking and saying, I sure would like to come in and, and fellowship with somebody. I sure would like to love you and be your brother and be your daddy. But they were too busy for Him. And it leads to a sort of blindness. The most glaring example in all of Scripture, I think, is, and it, this is... It's unbelievable that it got to this point, but as a sinful human, I also find it very believable. Jesus was nailed to a cross. He's hanging there, mutilated, bloodied, tortured, and suffocated. And the Roman guards have done their worst. And the Jewish priests have applauded their efforts. And this is what the most religious among them had to say. This is from John. Now it was the day of preparation and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the special Sabbath, they asked Pontius Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. It wasn't just a Passover. It was a Passover, and I don't know the ins and outs of the Jewish calendar, 
But my understanding is that the Passover that year, because of the phases of the moon and the timing of the week, it fell on a Sabbath, which for the Jews was Saturday. So the Passover also fell on a Saturday, this whole Feast of Unleavened Bread and the timing of it. And so what happened was, it's, that's why they used the term in John, a special Sabbath or a high Sabbath. And Deuteronomy says that anybody left hanging on a tree is a curse. Overnight, sorry, I left out the word overnight. Anybody left on a tree overnight is a curse. It defiles the land. It makes the land, the Jews are always concerned with the word unclean. It makes the land unclean. And so they went to Pilate and said, we cannot have him left out overnight because it will make the land unclean. And tomorrow, as you know, is a high Sabbath. Break his legs. He wasn't dead yet. Well, they didn't think he was dead yet. Turns out they never actually broke his legs, but they certainly went to do it. Because on the cross, when you can't push up with your legs, you suffocate, and it's a more speedy death. The Romans, as I understand it, leave you out there until the birds have their way with your corpse. It's awful and a horrible form of execution. But they didn't want it left overnight because it would defile the land. Y'all, they were so blind by their religion by their rituals, by their new moons and their Sabbaths and their convocations. They wanted to break the legs of God Himself so that they could keep their ceremony. They wanted to break the Son of God so that they could keep their high Sabbath. And they thought they were doing God a favor. And you see why in Isaiah, your new moon festivals, your appointed feast, God says, my soul hates they have become a burden to me. And this is the same God who years later was going to be hanging on the cross and feeling just the burden that these things had become to Him. Killed not so much by the Gentile soldiers who hung Him up there, but more by the religious elite who couldn't stand Him. And so do we see this today? Or is this just a Jewish thing? Was it only the Jews and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the people Jesus couldn't seem to leave alone? He always seemed to have issue with them. The people you think God would be most close to. Does it happen today? Well, I'll put it this way. Y'all, I wear a suit on Sunday morning because I want to show, my, as the saying goes, my utmost for His highest. It's the same reason I wear a tie every day to school. Even though most teachers don't, it doesn't make me a better teacher. I'm just trying to show the kids I mean business. I'm, you know, a lawyer wears a tie, I can wear a tie. But I don't think it makes me any closer to God to preach with a suit on than it does for an Episcopal or a Catholic or, or an Anglican priest to preach with his robes on than it does for a non-denominational priest or preacher to preach with blue jeans and a flannel shirt. I don't think, I don't think that's it. I do it for one reason, just because I don't want to be a distraction or a stumbling block to anybody. So I don't want to be a, a bother in anybody. It's kind of like I was at this church camp one time and the pastor who gave the evening service to the kids it was an excellent message. It was over, I think, in Wilkinson County. But he had this booger hanging from his nose <laughs> the whole time. And this was seven, eight years ago. I can't remember what his sermon was about, but I'll never forget that booger. I actually... On the way in, I borrowed one of y'all's car mirrors because I always check and I forgot to check. So I, if y'all thought I was stealing your car, I wasn't. I was checking. Well, it was a distraction. 
Religion sometimes can be a distraction of the relationship. And I want to read this passage from the... Now, this is Old Testament, but bizarrely 2020. It's from Ezekiel. And Ezekiel says this. Well, God says to Ezekiel, As for you, Ezekiel, your people are talking together about you by the walls, at the doors of the houses, saying to each other, Come and hear the message that has come from the Lord. My people come to you, Ezekiel, as they usually do, and they sit before you to hear your words, but they do not put them into practice. Their mouths speak of love, but their hearts are greedy for unjust gain. And this is the line that I thought was so relevant to the modern church's temptation. God said, Indeed, to them, you are nothing more than one who sings love songs with a beautiful voice and plays an instrument well. For they hear your words, but do not put them into practice. Ezekiel was preaching. He was a prophet. He was preaching and teaching and preaching and teaching. And they were coming. They were coming to listen. He had bigger crowds than Jesus did. You know, Jesus said, if you got 12 in your congregation, you're Jesus worthy. That's all He really had. And they were coming. But they were coming and not doing. And they were for them, Ezekiel was nothing more than one who sang really well or played the instrument really well. Essentially, it wasn't so much because they were coming to hear preaching, they were coming to hear a performance. And God complained about that. Isaiah chapter 10, God complained about that. I'm sorry, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 10. What we read for the start of this sermon. God complained about that. Are you coming to hear a performance? A song and dance from a good speaker. You ever hear that at the end of the He was such a good speaker. What a good speaker which is a nice compliment, and I'm thankful to the people who have said that. It's very encouraging. But do remember, that ain't it. You know, that's not what preaching is. That's not what a relationship with God is. The clothes, we want them to be non-distracting, but that's not what it is. And fill in the blank with any other ritual that may or may not be a stumbling block to your relationship to God. Anything you're counting on to make it right, to wash you, as it says, white as snow other than the blood of Jesus Christ, other than the sacrifice of a God who loved you, other than just the love of God and a love for God. Not religion, but relationship. The Pharisees, I was thinking, this is relevant because I've, I have done more elder care in the past month than I've ever done in my life. And I'm thinking, if nobody cares for these people, and they've got it. I mean, they've got what every American wants. Their houses are paid for. Their bills are paid. Their cars paid off and they can't live in them. They can't even remember their own name. If somebody doesn't care for them, what then? And the Bible says, honor your mother and your father. And so I have seen over the past month, I have seen in this sadness, tremendous opportunities for their children, my parents and my aunts and my uncles, to step up and honor their mother and their father and help them to, to walk this last season of life well. And I have seen sacrifice in the month of September. I don't think I've ever seen the likes of which before. And I know many of you have already been down this road and, and, and this is just my first steps into it. But you know what the Pharisees did according to Jesus? They would look at their parents and they would say, this is an exact quote, I don't remember the verse, but you can look it up. It's in Matthew or Mark, one of the two. And they would look at their parents and say, any help you otherwise would have gotten from me is Corbin. Corbin, Jesus said, was a, 
a gift devoted to God. And the way the Jews and the teachers of the law did it, if you spoke Corbin over something, like your money, for example, or your possessions, it was irrevocably given over to God. And you couldn't use it for anything else. So they would look at their parents who no doubt were aging and ailing and needing help. And they would say, instead of helping you, Corbin, I can't give you my money anymore. I can't give you my time. I've devoted my money and my time and my resources to God because I am so religious. And Jesus said, you are nullifying the Word of God which said, honor your mother and your father. You're nullifying it for the sake of your traditions. Blindness. That's the same blindness that would have you rather break the Son of God's legs than fall down and worship Him or just be like the criminal and say, Father, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, this day you will be with me in paradise. Rituals, ceremonies, they have a good function in our lives. They're important. Church is important. Pews are important. Clean carpet is important. A good clothing on the preacher is important. A prepared sermon. A good song service. These things are important. These are the function of worship. And the less distracting they are, the better so that you can actually focus on God when we get here. As C.S. Lewis said, a good shoe is the kind of shoe you don't notice. <laughs> That's true. A good worship service is one that you don't notice because it's so predictable that you don't have to bother with, well, what are we going to do next? What are we going to do next? What are we going to do next? You can focus on your relationship and your worship with the God who's looking down on us. So that, all of that stuff has its place and it's got a very purposeful place. All of these things in Isaiah chapter 1 verses 10 on it, I read, God came up with that. It was His idea. But instead, it got so bad that the, that the cart before the horse happened and they instead of seeking first the kingdom of God, they sought first their rituals and God was down the list somewhere. What's the conclusion of the matter? Here's a verse Jesus quoted. And if you're in the, the mind to turn over, it's not far. This is Isaiah 29. Isaiah had a lot to say about ceremony and religion devoid of relationship and actual passion for our God. Isaiah 29 verse 13, the Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. And that's what we don't want. And Lord willing, that's what we don't have. Jesus quoted that verse, so you know He liked it. And he was talking to the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. I think religion, well, James thinks that religion is to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Religion that our Father looks at as pure and blameless is to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. I think religion is right back where we started. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17. You don't have to turn there. It's only two words. Do right. That's religion. Do right. Ten times out of ten, we know what that is. We know what the next right step is. Pray about it. Hear it. Do it. Obedience is how you get to know God. Whatever that might look like for you. I pray that for y'all. There's nothing better than a tight relationship with your daddy.
I want to thank you for joining me for this episode of East and West, looking at the book of Isaiah. And again, I hope you'll join us for episode four, which will again be in Isaiah, looking at a whole new topic in a whole new way. I hope some of these are working for you, speaking to you, drawing you nearer to God. That is, of course, the whole point. If you're interested in any more information, check out my website, westyoungwriter.com. Join us again for episode four. Until then, press on, everybody.